before we uh, pray and read and preach through God's word, I want to kind of set some things up first. Some of you will remember this from second session last week. And if you miss second session, no big deal. As I told them, uh, I'm going to say it all again before the sermon today. Uh, essentially, when we talk about passages like the Olivet Discourse from the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew, uh, or, or if we're addressing the various passages of a book like Daniel or a book like Revelation, you have to take one of four basic positions about the events described in the various verses. Uh, you can look at these events that are spoken of and you can say, well, I think these things have already happened from where we are in redemptive history. Uh, second perspective is you can say, well, I think these things will happen later, right? And third position is, hey, these things are happening right now. Like we are in some sense in the middle of these things right now. And then the fourth perspective is, hey, these things are always happening, right? These things are kind of represent a, this, this symbolic kind of allegorical battle of good versus evil. And so for the faithful disciples of Yahweh, these are things we're experiencing in some sense all of the time, right? And, and there's, there's kind of fancy technical terms for those different positions. There's, uh, you know, preterism, these things have already happened, right? Futurism, these things will happen later. Uh, the position of, you know, these things are happening uh, right now, uh, throughout uh, throughout history, that's historicism, and then there's the view uh, that the things repeatedly happen throughout history because they're kind of symbolic of the Christian life as a whole. That's what's known as idealism, and then there's the position of eclecticism, which basically says, "Hey, it's a little bit of more than one of those things at, at once." Okay, and uh, that's that's a that's a super distilled down broad brush. Uh, general statement about those different positions, uh, and uh, and it can get very, uh, it can get very muddy uh, because one preterist might say, well, I think these things have happened, but not these things, and another preterist might say, well, I think they've all, it's all happened, okay, and uh, one historicist uh, perspective might be, well, these things that have happened in history represent these things that happened in the Bible, and someone else might say, well, no, I think those verses are pointing to these historical events. And so uh, just because two people call themselves futurists or two people call themselves idealists or source doesn't mean they're on the same page about everything. So it's, I think it's just better, instead of just using these labels, to just ask a teacher or a theologian, a pastor or individual, hey, just th these verses, what do you think about these things? Okay, uh, that's, just the, that's just the better way to do it, but we, we use these terms because in general, they give you an idea of the perspective uh, that someone is, is taking. And my personal view, I think, could be best described as an eclecticism, right? I, I think that uh, a lot of these events in the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation have already come to pass, but, but some of them are still future. They're still in our future yet to come to pass. And yet, I also believe because we live in the truth of the already but not yet, Jesus is already victorious, his kingdom is already here and yet not yet, I do think there are spiritual gleanings. Uh, even though a lot of these events have already come to pass in history, there's things that we can learn uh, from these various things that have happened to Christians uh, in the past, whether they lived in the age in which the Bible was being written or afterwards. All right? So have you kind of said all of that, let me pray for us. And then we'll turn to the scriptures. We'll be in Daniel 9 and Mark chapter 13 today. So let me pray. Father, we come in the name of Christ to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit as we open your word this morning. Our souls long for your salvation and we hope in your word. Our eyes long for your promises 
And we seek to find comfort in you. Lord, this morning uphold your servants so that we might endure. Bring your judgment upon those who persecute the church. For the insolent have dug pitfalls for your covenant people. And they do not live according to your law. All of your commandments are sure, even when the wicked persecute us with falsehood. So help us, Lord, even as they seek to make an end of your people on the earth, we have not forsaken your precepts. And your steadfast love for your children, give us life so that we may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Teach us now from your word as we open to the gospel of Mark for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and errant and life-giving word starting in Daniel chapter 9, just reading verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand... That from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. Picking up in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not has been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. At one point, in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, as the Fellowship has set out to destroy the Ring in Mordor, Aragorn, the leader of the group, says, We cross the lake at nightfall, hide the boats, and continue on foot. We approach Mordor from the north. 
And his plan is met with the stark realism of Gimli, the dwarf, who is ever faithful to deliver straight talk to his companions within the fellowship, sometimes to their great annoyance. As he once stated, no one ever asks me for my opinion, but he gives it anyway, right? And the great Welsh actor John Rhys Davies masterfully delivered these lines as Gimli, the son of Gloin, in response to Aragorn's plan. Oh yes, it's just a simple matter of finding our way through an impassable labyrinth of razor-sharp rocks. And after that, it gets even better. Festering, stinking marshlands far as the eye can see. Here's the big idea of this passage this morning. Uh, Jesus, the son of God, like Gimli, son of Gloin, tells us the truth about the troubles that we're going to face. Life for the disciples in the first century and throughout church history, uh, for them, carrying the gospel throughout the Roman Empire at times was a little bit like carrying the one ring into Mordor to be cast into the fires of Mount Doom. There were troubles everywhere. And in some sense, the fallen condition of the world in which they lived remains the same for the church today. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, in the world you will have trouble, or as some translations put it, tribulation. The reality for the church militant, that is the church alive here on earth today, it's a reality of trouble. Life is a life of trouble. You don't have to go looking for it. If you're a faithful Christian who's straightforward in their speech and bold with your life, trouble will find you one way or another. And isn't it, be, isn't it better to be prepared for that than to be caught unawares? Right? Every Sunday afternoon, back when I was playing college football at, the, uh, at Tennessee Tech University, we would gather into the football facilities around 4 or 5 p.m., and we would receive scouting reports, and we would watch film on the opposing team, and our coaches would do their best to let us know what the next opponent was all about, what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were. They, they didn't lead us into game day blindly. Right? We were aware of who we were playing and what they were capable of. Right? Like a good coach, Jesus tells us the truth about the troubles that we face. And here's the application that they are given, and I think it's an application for us found in verse 23. We must be on guard. That's what he tells them. Be on your guard. The New American Standard 1995 says, take heed. If you're a big fan of college basketball, one of the locations that you must make a pilgrimage to is in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, at Kansas University, the Fog Allen Fieldhouse. You walk in and there's a sign that says, pay heed, all you who enter here, right? And I can tell you this, regular season games that mean absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things, that place is still packed out, and it's still loud. And if you're an opposing player on that floor, you still feel like the walls are probably shaking and going to crumble down around you. So it's, a, it's an appropriate warning. Pay heed. Take heed. Be on your guard, all who enter here. That's essentially how Jesus is going to send his disciples out into the world. Like, hey, be on your guard, right? There's troubles ahead, but what does that trouble look like? What is the trouble that Jesus made them aware of? What are the trials that we might face in this life that are similar to the ones that they faced? Well, the first one is this. There's a reality here in these verses, verses 14 through 20, of temporal judgment. Temporal judgment's real. Eternal judgment is, is real, and oftentimes as we come to passages that deal with eschatology and prophecies, we're super-duper focused on the final judgment that comes after Jesus' second physical uh, coming, his, his, his great return to the, to the earth, right? But oftentimes in eschatological texts and prophetic texts, there is temporal judgment at hand. 
And I want to start this section of verses by explaining three very important phrases that are often hotly debated. The first is the phrase, the abomination of desolation. Uh, uh, Scholars who agree on what that was don't quite agree on what that phrase means and exactly how we parse that out and define it. But I, I believe the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about is the invasion of, of, Titus, of Rome led by the general Titus. You'll notice what verse 14 of chapter 13 says. It says, you'll see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. Right? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So the abomination of desolation isn't simply an it. It's kind of a what and who at the same time. Okay? So Titus of Rome surrounds the city. He eventually becomes emperor. So that's a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that describes the one who destroys the city as a prince, right? So in some sense, as Titus uh, is leading uh, Rome's armies to destroy Jerusalem, to take down the temple and to destroy all the other buildings, he is, uh, maybe he doesn't know at the time, but he's the future emperor, right? Lane, in his commentary, describes the abomination of desolation as an appalling sacrilege. And you find this phrase in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. This, is, this abomination of desolation has happened before. When Daniel gave this prophecy, when he saw this vision from the Lord, there was a near fulfillment, and there was a, a fulfillment that was farther off. The first fulfillment was in 168 to 167 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that's a mouthful of a name, isn't it? He invaded Jerusalem, and he took an altar of Zeus and put it on top of the Jewish altar in the temple, and then he sacrificed a swine, a pig, an unclean animal on top of it. That's an abomination to the Lord, right? It was super offensive to the Jewish people. So that's already happened once, but now Jesus is saying it's going to happen again. You're going to see the abomination of desolation where he ought not be. Now, here's what you need to understand about Rome. In Rome, the the legionnaire standards, right, the banners of their armed forces, were seen by the troops with kind of a worship-like awe. And the Jewish people thought that was idolatrous. And so Rome, trying to keep their subjects kind of subdued, not wanting to offend them, would work very hard to keep their legionnaire banners out of the city. Right? All right, so troops, you can go in, just leave, you know, leave the flags, leave the standards out there so that we don't cause a riot. Right? We're trying to keep control of these people. We don't want to give them any reason to revolt. So what happens is when Titus comes rolling in, is they come rolling through Jerusalem, rolling through the temple, bearing their standards. They're like, we don't care. These Jewish people have caused a war now. They've started it. We're going to end it. We don't care about offending them. Right? The, whole, the time of niceties is over, and so here come these standards that they viewed as blasphemous and idolatrous. Right? They didn't really care about provoking them anymore. So that's the abomination of desolation. It's happened before in history, and it's going to happen again. And if you read uh, Daniel 9 and Daniel 11 and 12, you can kind of see how different elements were of that were fulfilled in the 2nd century B.C. and how various other elements would have been fulfilled in the first century. Eventually we'll go through Daniel, I don't know, in like 20 years or so. So just stay with me and we'll get there eventually. Here's the second phrase, those days. William Lane in his commentary uh, makes it very clear that when Jesus is talking about those days, he's talking about 66 to 70 AD, right? Uh, The Boston Celtics recently lost to the Miami Heat. 
uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals, and everybody thought, we're finally we're going to make it back to the finals again. And, and Boston Celtics fans will often talk about those days, like the good old days. We're talking about a, a past era, like in the 60s and 70s, where they were, it's like they were the only team in the NBA or something. Like they kept, they won like 10 straight uh, NBA championships or something absurd like that. And so you'll often hear Boston fans talking about that. I think the, the Bruins, the, the hockey team in Boston, had a similar run like that way back in a bygone era. And so Boston will often talk about those days. And I imagine in 30 years, they'll be talking about the Tom Brady era in New England the same way, right? So at Jesus, in this passage, he's answering two different questions. And he's, they, they, you know, they want to know, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And when are you coming back in your glory? Like, when are you physically returning for, for final judgment. And Jesus is answering those two different questions, and I believe that what you see as he's answering two different questions in the Olivet Discourse is he uses two different phrases regarding time. And so when he uses the phrase, in those days, or those days, he's talking about one time period, and when he leaves that phrase behind, he picks up a new phrase, which we'll see next week, and then he's talking about the second time period in which there will be the physical return, the, the second coming of Christ. So hopefully that makes sense. As we're dealing with the phrase, this week and next week, those days, or in those days, we're talking about this time period of 66 to 70 AD. Here's the third phrase. It's a much longer one. As has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And this is the phrase that causes many to believe that, well, Jesus must be talking about the very end of the universe, his second coming. He must be talking about the end of all things. But both France and William Lane point out that that's simply not the case. R.T. France calls, uses this phrase, or he says, this is a stock expression for great suffering. So if you're a Jewish person and you're, and, and you're, uh, you're wanting to describe a period or event of great uh, suffering, unparalleled suffering in your life, your generation of, of being alive, this is a phrase that you would use. You see this in Joel 2. Exodus 9, 10, 11, it's, it's used in Revelation 16. It's even used in an apocryphal book that's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, 1 Maccabees chapter 9. So you can see that this is, this is not just a phrase that the Holy Spirit inspires men to use. It's actually a Jewish colloquialism. It's, a, it's, a, it's Jewish hyperbole. That's what William Lane describes it as. It's Jewish hyperbole to communicate the severity of distress. Oracles of doom. You see a lot of these in Isaiah. Oracles of doom, temporal judgment, are often couched in universal extreme language, right? So even when the prophets are like bringing uh, oracles of doom against a particular nation or a collection of nations, sometimes the language they use, use sounds like the whole, you know, the whole sky is falling down, right? It's hyperbole to grab your attention. We understand this. It's funny. Uh, Westerners act like we don't understand hyperbole uh, when we read the Bible, uh, but we sure do get it when we watch sports. I can't tell you how many times in the last five years I've heard analysts say, we've never seen a player like this before. We've never seen a performance like this before. We've never seen a game like this before. Just recency bias, maybe, mixed in with the need to drive ratings and get people to continue to watch the same sports show over and over and over again, right? right that's hyperbole. We use it all the time, okay? How many times have you gone to a restaurant? You're like, oh, that was the best ever. It was the best ever, or it was just the best meal you've had today, right? This week, this month, right? William Lane points out that this phrase, uh, attached at the very end of the longer phrase, and never will be, clearly indicates the tribulation is not last day's second coming stuff, 
but rather this is an oracle about a specific historical moment that fulfills Daniel's prophecies, right? So this phrase used by Jesus is not about the sky falling. It's about a temporal historical event of judgment, and the universe will keep trucking along like it has in the past when this phrase has been used by prophets and other people before. Okay, so those are the terms I want us to understand. Now let me uh, point out in these verses just two things to bring to your attention. The first is the urgency and intensity of this event. We see this in verses 15 through 19. Basically what Jesus says here is when you see Rome coming, when you see Rome coming into Judea, the general region around Jerusalem, get off your roof and go. If you're on the roof of your house, flee down the staircase. Don't turn the corner and go inside because remember their staircases don't lead inside. The staircases from the roof go to the outside. So he's like, don't even go inside. If you're working out in your field, don't go home first. Whatever you got in the field, that's what you can take with you. Flee to the mountains. Now here's the next thing he says, and this I'm going to camp out here for just about 60 seconds because it's important. He says pregnancy and infancy will make this really, really tough. Now, here's why. Oftentimes disagreements over eschatology don't have immediate life-altering, like choice-making uh, effects on people. This one does. If you have bad eschatology and you teach bad eschatology from the pulpit, you will lead people, and I've met people like this. They think we're living in the last days. We're living in the tribulation, so they're like, we're just not going to have kids, or we're not going to have any more kids because, like, you know, this isn't a time. The, the tribulation, I mean, Jesus said that, like, having kids, being pregnant in times like these, why would we do that? Right? So because they've been misled to think that this is a current event rather than a past event, that they're, they're, they think that this is a reason that, hey, we shouldn't have kids or have more kids. They've literally made family planning decisions based on bad eschatology. Okay? Jesus says, pray this doesn't happen in winter. Why? Because traveling, when it's, it's harder in the winter, right? When you see Rome invading, all of these different circumstances are going to make it harder for you to do what you need to do, and that is to get out of Dodge. Like, do not collect, uh, do not pass go, do not collect $200, get out of town. The dominant note here in these verses is flee run right and what good does fleeing do if this is the second coming <laughs> if this is the if, if this if, if is passage is describing the re- physical return of christ the second coming where there's final judgment what good does running do none right this is clearly describing an earthly power invading another geopolitical space for its destruction now here's what's interesting here's what we can glean from first century historians many of whom weren't Christians. 1.1 million people died as Rome sieged Jerusalem. And one report from a non-Christian was that none of them were Christians. Why? Because the Christians got out of town. And you know what the non-Christian Jewish people did? Rome's coming. Let's go to Jerusalem. It's a big, thick, walled city. They can't get in in there. Oh, no problem. They're going to starve you out. And you know what happened? Mothers began to have to make decisions about which child they were going to use to feed the other kids. That's how terrible this was. So the word of God saved these Christians who obeyed, and other people put their trust in, not in horses, but in the size of their walls and in the strength of their temple, and it cost them their lives. Here's an application for us. I I think, in some sense, 
we should flee the Jerusalems of our day and age coming under judgment. Here's what I mean by that. The institutions that were once faithful to God but have since driven him out of their presence, I think judgment's coming. I think the, the, higher, uh, the higher education system of the United States of the Western world, I think it's headed for a massive bubble that's just going to burst, and there's going to be lots of judgment. We don't have to partake in those institutions. We don't have to partake in various institutions when the building, when the ship is on fire and going down. Right? Here's another application here. I think this, this passage means that we can, if we want to, we can flee geopolitical spaces and find a better place to live. Right? If you're living in certain parts of the world where uh, it seems like God's judgment is coming upon that society for their wickedness and godlessness, it's okay to move to the nation or to the province or state next door to avoid that chaos. I meet all kinds of people, I'm sure you do too, who are leaving California behind. It's hard to look at the state of California and think, yeah, judgment's not coming there. Right? So when I meet people who are moving here from California, I'm like, all right, look. You, you see what's happening in your state. Let's not do that here. Let's leave the foolishness and the godlessness on the left coast. Don't bring the godlessness here right there's a reason you're leaving that place because here's the deal folks eventually there's no there's no state to flee to like eventually you just have to stay somewhere like eventually you just you just have to live in a place that we either have a godly society or it won't like pluralism has failed surely we can all see that by now there's only one true god that leads to the peace of a city and it's the lord and eventually, there's nowhere else to go. So we just have to take the place where we live and move it forward. So be on guard. Pay attention to the society in which you live. Be on your guard. Protect your heart. Guard your heart from escapism and pacifism, right? The, the pietistic idea of, well, I just need to be holy and just, you know, this world's going to burn down around me. I just need to read my Bible and pray. And the gospel actually has an impact on people's lives. The word of God can be brought to bear on individuals, communities, institutions, and society. Here's another application from this passage. We should value life more than possessions. Be on your guard to not love stuff more than you love the life that God has given you. Jesus warns them, don't go home and grab your stuff. Even if you're on your roof, that's such a short trip. You go down one flight of stairs, you turn inside, you grab a bag, and you go. Jesus says, don't even do that. Value your life more than possessions. Here's another application. I think we should pray. They're told to pray. Pray this doesn't happen in winter. You know, in other words, pray that, that these rough circumstances aren't more difficult than they have to be. I think we should pray for the current state of our society, and yet we should do more than pray. The church has a prophetic voice to warn people about the danger of rebelling against God. So that's the urgency and intensity of this event. But also reflected in these verses is the mercy of God in temporal judgment. Isn't verse 20 really interesting? He says that this time period, it was shortened for who? For whose sake? The sake of the elect. Don't you think the non-elect, the non-regenerate, non-Christians benefited from that shortened time period? Yes, they did. But it wasn't for their sake. It was for the sake of God's chosen people. God is severe with Jerusalem because of the great covenant infidelity of that former covenant people. But he is merciful for the sake of the elect. 
The remnant makes a difference. The godly, the, the chosen people of God make a difference. God upholds and sustains his people as an act of grace and mercy for rebels as a byproduct of his grace to his people to sustain them. As I mentioned earlier, the siege lasted five months. And so when, when, he, when he says that he's shortening this time for the sake of the elect, I think what this means is that there are elect people left in the city who survive and come to saving faith after the siege is over or perhaps during the siege. I think those who believed in Jesus, those who were converted before the siege began, before this war began, I think they had already gotten out of Dodge. But I think, you know, as, as you've probably heard the expression before, a lot of people are converted in foxholes, right? I, I think that for the sake of the elect who would come to saving faith after the siege began, God shortened this time. And that benefited even the non-elect in the city. And yet they went right along, continuing to rebel against the one true true God, despite the fact that they experienced common grace. But it was for the sake of the elect that this terrible time in the history of Israel was shorter than it could have been otherwise. Here's an application for us. We should praise God for his common grace. And we should not hesitate to suggest to non-Christians that perhaps they are receiving so much mercy and they're experiencing so much common grace in their lives despite their hard hearts towards God because God is in pursuit of them. God could be seeking them out. I have a friend who recently was in a terrible car crash. I don't know how he, how he walked away from it. but I just reached out to him and I texted him and I said, man, this is, it's clear that God's mercy was abundant in this situation. And his reflection on that was, I, I believe that God is clearly not done with me quite yet, to which I say amen. Here's the second reality that Jesus told them about. This is the second category of troubles headed their way. It's kind of somewhat a repeat, but an expansion of what he's previously warned them about. It's the reality of a twofold deception. There will be false Christs and false prophets, right? Uh, war the Jewish war does not shut down the rise of alt-Christs. In fact, it seems to fan the flame of it because now these, these false messiahs will rise to the occasion and say, it's okay, guys, I've returned, and they'll claim to be Jesus. Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians and other passages in John and 1 John uh, warns the, the church about false teachers, about false prophets, about antichrists. And I think what these antichrists were doing in this particular time frame in this particular context is they would be trying to deter people from fleeing from Jerusalem. You don't have to run anymore. I've returned. I'm here to save you. Terrible idea. Don't believe them. That's the application that they're given. Don't believe them. Because these imposters are unable to stop judgment. Right? Deuteronomy 13 verse 4 and verse 9 warn about prophets who are false. In those days, if they were false prophets, they would stone them. Uh, today, we give them book deals. We send them on tour. We give them websites. If their predictions are wrong, we buy the next book that comes out. That seems to be how the Western world responds to these false prophets at times. But the application is to not believe them. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, could you imagine receiving a letter from Paul and it kind of opens with this? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And this is key. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Don't believe them. I can't believe you're tempted to believe. I can't believe that in some sense you are believing them. Don't do it. That's what Paul is saying. It's an application not just for the first century church, but also for us. And there are false prophets with false Christs arriving in our time. They weren't the only generation of Christians to deal with false prophets and false versions of Jesus. Allah, Islam, that's a false religion. They have a false version of Jesus. They reduce Jesus down to just a prophet. Muhammad is a false prophet. I mean, it's pretty clear. I have a copy of the, of the Quran translated into English in my office. Um, it's on the, the section of my bookshelf entitled Blasphemous Heretical Texts. It's clearly, some guy just, I mean, he plagiarized the Old Testament badly. He didn't even do a good job of it. And people are like, oh, yes, a new revelation from God, easily deceived. The Gnostic Bible, same thing, has a false version of Jesus. People are like, well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? You mean the, gospel, the quote, Gospel of Thomas, written like, I don't know, 75 years after the guy died? Yeah, it's definitely not written by Thomas. Don't believe it, right? Jehovah's Witnesses. The Watchtower is basically an organization that operates as a false prophet with a false Jesus. They've changed the Bible, right? They've fiddled with Greek grammar. They've, they've ignored the principles of interpretation in order to get a version uh, of Jesus out of the Bible that's not actually there. Mormons have done the same thing. I 100% believe that Joseph Smith saw some sort of vision or some sort of angel telling him what to write. I just believe it was a demon. And if he had just known his Bible or cared to follow Galatians 1, he would have understood that that's what was going on. Not to mention the whole giant golden tablets thing that he could never like reproduce and like show people the evidence of what he received, right? It's a false prophet. Some of you are like, this, this bothers some Christians. They're such nice people, Pastor. People have literally said that to me. They're so nice. Yeah. Yeah, heretics can be really charming. People, people in cults following false religions can be really nice. It's one of the reasons they're so dangerous. Here's one that'll probably, if, if you're not offended yet by things that I've listed, just buckle up. Some of you might have your feathers ruffled. And I don't do this because I, I, I like it. I do it because I'm your shepherd. And I'm supposed to warn you about this kind of thing. There's a, there's a quote, denomination in the Christian community. It's, it's, there's at least two of these churches in our area, Seventh-day Adventists. There's some false teachings. They've added, they've added to the gospel. You, you know how that denomination got started, right? It started, and it was this close to dying. It was so close to just being wiped out. And then a woman named Ellen G. White started claiming to have visions from God. She claimed to have over 2,000 of them. And people were like, oh, great. And then Seventh-day Adventist movement made a great comeback. I mean, there, there's, there's two problems there. One, claiming to have visions from God. Secondly, this is a woman. A woman became kind of the new pastor, the new leader of, of this movement. There's biblical problem with that. I mean, Paul says to Timothy, I do not permit women to teach and exercise authority over men. And yet an entire group of people, an entire church, are like, this is great. Right? Lead us, Ellen. This is wonderful. And then there's uh, this other thing that happens in our, our culture. People claim to have the title of prophet. This is our prophet. Right? Uh, people claim to be pastors. Where's your, who's your fault? Who's called you to be a pastor? Well, I just, I'm just called by God. God called me in a dream to be a pastor, and I just kind of pastor people I come in contact with. Have you encountered this? This is real. It doesn't happen often, but I've, I've met people like that more than once. They view themselves. They have no flock. They've not been called 
uh, by a spirit-indwelled branch of, of the church, uh, but they are a self-titled pastor, and uh, they just, you know, I have a word of the Lord for you. Oh, okay, well, fire away, big guy. But hold on, before you do, if you're wrong, you know what the Bible says we have to do to you? Do you really want to proceed? Right? I've never done that, but I've just dreamt of it, right? It's just like that's... We probably should warn people like that who, who say that they have a word of prophecy from the Lord in an authoritative way because they're in danger. And so are the people that are listening to them. So there are still false teachers, false prophets of, of some sort living in our world today. And no matter how nice or charming they are, they're not to be listened to, they're not to be believed. Jesus even said, don't fall for their signs and wonders. Because I've heard this a lot. Well, they've said these things, and they were right. They told me if I did this, this, and this, that God would do And they were right, Pastor Nate. Yes, I have no doubt that some of these people are able to produce signs and wonders for you. Jesus said they would. But if the Holy Spirit did not give them the ability, if Christ, the King, did not give them the ability to do this, who did? I was just reminded of this this morning as I was explaining the story of, of, of uh, Moses delivering the people out of, out of Egypt and the templates to, to my two oldest kids, the middle one just not tracking with it. But the four-and-a-half-year-old was getting it. And it, I was reminded of the fact that uh, uh, Pharaoh's magicians were able to cast their staves, their rods, down on the ground and transform them to snakes too. Where do you think that, that power came from? Right, Satan. But what happens in that story, the point is not, look what Aaron can do, and they, they can't do it. It's that Aaron's serpent ended up devouring all of theirs. Right? So if someone's able to produce signs and wonders for you, who cares? Jesus says they would, and yet they're still false Christ, false prophets, false teachers. When you read the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, false prophets and false teachers lead to the demonic. They lead to idolatry, spiritualized immorality, pride, and sexual immorality. They don't ultimately take you where you need to go as a believer. And the Bible says that their purpose and their work here, their aim, is to lead you astray. They may, be, they may seem as sincere as possible. They may not be aware that they're false. That's irrelevant. The ultimate goal behind them, behind the power that drives them, is to lead you astray. And the text says, if possible, the elect. It's amazing how many commentaries I've read this past week that just gloss over that phrase, if possible, the elect, like it's not even there. They didn't have much of an answer. But here's the deal. The rest of the Bible answers the question, can the elect be led astray? And the answer is, in the long run, no. There might be a short season where someone who is an elect saint of the Lord is deceived or does wander off briefly. But the God who called them, the God who predestined them and elected them before the foundation of the world, he puts them in his hand. The Father and the Son alike have their people in their hand. Those people are sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. The entire Trinity has its hands, its grip upon you, and will not let you go. Praise God, the elect cannot be ultimately led astray and led away into apostasy. The same Lord Jesus who tells his people the truth about the tribulations that we face also promised that those who belong to him will not perish but have everlasting life. The elect cannot ultimately and completely fall away. False messiahs and their false prophets stand no chance. 
disaster and the trials of life, lies, persecution, oppression, depression, challenges in life, come whatever may, nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ our Lord. So be on your guard. Take heed and yet also take heart. Because the king who issues us warnings also issues us assurance of his grace. Be watchful and keep your eyes fixed upon the hill of the Lord, for that's where your help comes from. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.